Bruxism has a lot in common with periodontal disease. Mm-hmm. Because we have to have these difficult conversations with our patients that you have this problem. I can't cure this problem for you. I'm happy to help you, but it's your problem. Welcome to the Protrusive Dental Podcast, the forward-thinking podcast for dental professionals. Join us as we discuss hot topics in dentistry, clinical tips, continuing education, and adding value to your life and career. With your host, Jazz Gulati. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Protrusive Dental Podcast. I have got an absolute rock star, and I use that term purposefully because I've got a story associated with Chris or Dr. Chris Orr, who's coming on the show today to discuss about a mammoth topic, which is basically composites versus ceramic. Which is best and how do you choose? So the story with Chris Orr is when I was a student, when I was about a fourth year student, we'd have these uh, dentists who were several years qualified come in and they'll be learning how to place implants and we'd be like on these clinics just floating around as students do doing nothing much. So anyway, I got talking to one of the dentists and he was giving me some advice uh, as me being a fourth year dentist student, he wanted to give me some advice, which I thought was very kind. And basically he was basically blowing off some steam He was having a rant about the state of dentistry in the UK. He wasn't a very happy dentist in terms of how dentistry was in the UK. And he kept saying, look, if you really want to be a great dentist, if you really want to be an amazing dentist, you have to uh, go transatlantic. You have to go to the USA and do some training there or get to a American dental school, do a postgraduate degree or do some courses in USA and basically move to USA is, is essentially what he was saying to me. But then he said, however, There is one dentist in the UK that I think is amazing. He said, have you heard of Chris Orr? At the time, I hadn't heard of Chris Orr. He said, and he he said to me, Chris Orr is a rock star dentist. And and that has, I've never forgotten that. That has never left me. So whenever I see the name Chris Orr, I always think rock star dentist, basically. So obviously that dentist, um, I think, I see where he was coming from, but I think nowadays with the the UK also producing such, well, we already have lots of great dentists, and I think that perception that uh, USA has better dentists than UK, I, I don't think is 100% true at all. Um, whether the training is better may be a different story, but definitely the color of dentistry in the UK is something I'm proud of, uh, and we have some huge names, and one of them is Chris Orr. Over to Chris Orr and the discussion, composites versus ceramic, which is best and how do you choose? So, Chris, uh, Dr. Chris Orr, thank you so much for coming on the Protrusive Dental Podcast. Thank you for having me. You are someone of, uh, yeah, no, you are someone that a lot of my uh, listeners have sort of messaged me proactively saying, can you please get Chris Orr on the show? And um, I think that's one good thing that came out of lockdown. Uh, you know, I managed to get you free enough in your schedule to, to, to pounce on the opportunity, I guess. So I really, really, really appreciate it. And uh, people on the Instagram page were quite excited to, to learn from you today. And the topic we've uh, t- chosen is uh, something that, as I said before, you can write a thesis, uh, several theses on this topic. So it's composite versus ceramic how to choose uh, which is the best, basically. Uh, tell us about um, wh- why you think this is a, a good topic to discuss. Um, I think it's very pertinent for wh- how we're practicing at the moment, not just returning to work post-coronavirus um, lockdown, but just generally. Over the last probably 20-odd years, we've seen quite a few trends in 
the material science that underpins what we do on a daily basis. Um, we've moved away from restorations which are um, retained mechanically. Um, so a lot of the traditional Schillingberg stuff of um, preparation geometry, making a restoration stay on a tooth, that has largely fallen by the wayside because we rely on adhesion for the vast majority of restorations that we place. And also, of course, the materials that we attach onto that adhesion have become a lot better. So composite has improved hugely mm. away from the stuff that we had 20 years ago, which you had to be super talented, um, sort of Didier-Dietchy, Newton-Fall kind of level, Lorenzo Venini kind of level mm. of skill to achieve a good result. And you know th their work was awesome, uh, and it still is. But if you gave those guys you know, Play-Doh, they could make a tooth out of mm -hmm. it and it would look perfect. Today, we have materials that are, composite materials that are really, really wonderful and they've been designed for a whole range of usages so that a dentist with um, an above average level of skill, an above average level of motivation and a sensible amount of clinical time can do a really decent mm -hmm. job, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, porcelain's also got a lot better. Um, a lot of the thing, the materials that we had used historically, um, which were either very difficult for the technician to make or didn't look all that nice, they are sort of falling by the wayside. Um, now, not every material is dying a death. Most things do still have a place, but mm -hmm. how much of a place those things have, um, that's something I think we'll explore during the rest of the podcast. But essentially, it mean, both of these things mean that we can be very, very conservative. We can hopefully produce a restoration that's going to be durable for the patient over whatever time scale we happen to want it to, to last over. So we're in a very, very good place. And the difficulty, I think, is that the, there's always these sort of pendulums that swing back and forth in dentistry we've seen the professional regulatory pendulum swing far too far over mm. to the side of witch hunt which is yep. where we're at i think we're, we're sort of starting to swing back the other way with the gdc at the moment from what i can see um but the pendulum of you know do you prep the tooth do you try to do it no prep do you what do you try and do um mm -hmm. at the ex at both extremes outcomes are not good so we can prep right. teeth very heavily. We can get things that may look very nice. But sometimes when you think about survival, I wonder sometimes if we're thinking about the survival of the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. So if the restoration lasts 25 years and at the end of that 25 years, the tooth has to be removed, you know, on some level, are we really doing the patient a favor? Whereas on the other side of the pendulum, the, the idea to do it no prep which is very easily achievable with a direct restoration in mm -hmm. many cases. Um, and there are some situations where we can do it, an indirect restoration with no prep, provided that the patient has grown a tooth that's in the right shape to mm -hmm. allow us to fit the restoration onto it. That's a good way to put it. And it, you know, it is, but it is, if you think about it, uh, the classic example, if you can think of a um, peg-shaped lateral incisor, it's like an ice cream cone. Yep. perfect and the orthodontist has opened up all the space it's perfect you take an impression you glue on your and it's ceramic job done easy you could also do it in porcelain or sorry in porcelain in composite. composite but the number of that exact presentation you're going to see in your life it's going to be quite small so it's it's the the reason the discussion is interesting is that some people um, seem to believe that every problem in dentistry can be sorted out with composite. Mm -hmm. And a lot of problems can. 
wonderful material. Um, but there are some there comes a point sometimes where, depending on where you've started from with the patient, and depending on how long you want things to last, then there may be some other things you you and the patient may wish to consider. I think is the best opening statement. Mm-hmm. Um, other thing is, I think probably looking at some of the. And again, it's, it's very common when I'm talking to a group of colleagues that a lot of the questions are along the lines of, what do you always do? Do you always do this? Do you always do that? And unfortunately, one can never be completely black and white. I mm-hmm. wish we could. Yeah. Um, if you want to do, if you see this, then you always do that. You're practicing probably about 50 years too late. Because if you think about the 1960s and 70s, if you had a small hole, you did an amalgam filling. If you had a medium or large hole, pinned amalgam. Maybe an inlay, big hole, crown. Easy. Mm-hmm. Bigger hole than that, take it out. Mm-hmm. Way more complex. And the decision tree was very easy. Blessing and curse. Dentistry is very sophisticated these days, which means we've got to be really uh, mindful of exactly what we're choosing. So I think the only answer that I would give to what do you always do is look and think. Mm-hmm. Use your brain. Every every one of your listeners is smart enough to make those decisions. Um, they've all got good brains. We know that because they were able to get into dental school in the first place with A-level grades that are so high that I don't know if I could get back in again if I had to do A-levels again today. Um, and everybody's able to get out again at the end with a degree. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, it does require a little bit of mental effort, which can be challenging in the busy practice environment that some people mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, um, with with that in mind, one thing I can automatically say is in that position of someone who's got into dental school is now qualified a couple of years. I'm just putting myself in that position again. And I think a lot of very young dentists, we're abusing composite. These We're doing very, very big, large composites for a couple of reasons. And one thing that no one really discusses about, or certainly I think we could discuss a bit more, is because sometimes the, and this is a communication thing, is that the dentist, the young dentist is afraid to, to, to prep because of the, the lack of experience in preparations. They're far more uh, confident with something direct and that might be uh, hugely influential to why they may choose the direct composite. But also, um, talking financially, a composite is always usually going to be, um, you know, several factors cheaper than a, or, or less expensive uh, than a indirect ceramic, for example. And I think sometimes as a, as a young dentist, one year, two year qualified, you're not really confident enough to then say to a patient, OK, that would be a thousand pounds for a crown rather than three hundred seven pounds for a composite. Just made up those figures. So that mm-hmm. also has a role to play in it, I think. It's OK. I, I can understand completely where that com- that sort of problem can come from and yeah there are a number of things and i think just thinking back to when i was in that position mm-hmm. a couple of years out of dental school um at that time my world was very different the i was i spent probably about three years working in the nhs in a variety of different environments the, the version of the nhs i worked in um is probably closer to what your listeners who work in either northern ireland or scotland have where you get a fee per item it's not a very good fee but you know you get paid for unlike the current system which is just nuts Mm -hmm. um at that time also the if things went wrong if you had a complication there was often a way of it being repaired and sorted out without the patient 
having to pay anything usually and without the NHS really noticing unless you really went crazy with your guarantee claims. These days I understand it's a little bit more challenging. Um, but certainly the the being talking to, I th- and I think actually it, I think probably for your listeners what I would say, it's a, an important skill to learn to look, to talk to your patients and say, look, here is the problem. Um, we can here are the choices as to what we can do we can do this option which has the following pros and cons we can do this one which has the following pros and cons and we can do this one whatever whatever it is um, and our job is not I don't think our job is ever to sell any any treatment to anybody our job is to explain and the patient makes their choice to make an informed choice and very often the patient will say well what would you do and then the answer and even I get that question very often what would you do and I say okay if you were my a member of my family brother sister mother whatever um then I would choose this thing for these reasons because I think it's the best balance and a lot of patients will trust you it's a lot of it is building up rapport with the patient over and that is not something you can manufacture it takes time and it takes confidence to look people in the eye and say okay I'm really sorry this is not a good situation. We have to take the tooth out. I'm sorry. Um, but just that sort of honesty mm-hmm. is quite helpful. The big advantage that we have today that I didn't have when I started off in practice is digital photography. Mm. Makes it extremely easy. Get a photograph, put it on the screen. People understand. Um, in my day, we used to take little film-based extras, we'd hold them up to light and go, do you see that just there? <laughs> and... The patients, and looking back at it retrospectively, I don't know how anybody ever agreed to treatment on the basis of that because mm-hmm. they have no idea what they're looking at, what you're talking about, and they just go, okay, I trust you. Let's go for yeah. it. But I think the advice would be use the humans. We are visual creatures. So use all the visual tools that you have. Learn how to use a camera um, so that you can show patients things so that they can understand better. And then the, the explanation becomes an awful lot easier. Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, just because um, it, when I was a couple of years, I mean, I've done hundreds of restorations uh, in direct composite, which really should have been indirect in my career so far. And that was because of all the things, you know, lack of confidence at the time um, and the lack of the right communication skills and rapport building and uh, establishing, establishing enough trust with your patient. But that was just a little something. It's not, I don't want that to be a main focus or anything, but that was a little interesting point. So when, one thing well, I want to ask you. It is yeah. actually, a relevant, it's actually mm. a relevant thing because yeah. we do see and we're all influenced by what we see on social media. And we see beautiful things. Um, And you look at these clinical works of art, and some of them are gorgeous. And you look and think, wow, that's fantastic. It's much better than I can do. And you ask the person, how long did this take you to do? And they go, three hours. And let's say it's an MOD composite. That's an unrealistic amount of time. Mm -hmm. Um, So the next question should be, you know, how, long, how much of that time did your patient pay you for? And then the following follow-up question, which they never, ever answer, um, how does your boss feel about that? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. What I, and I think it is an important thing that when we're thinking about direct versus indirect, we have to be pragmatic about, can we get something that is clinically acceptable for that patient, from where the, and that varies a little bit from patient to patient perhaps, can we get something in an acceptable, acceptable amount of clinical time an amount of clinical time the patient will pay you for. Um, and we also have to think about longevity. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some there and there are some situations where having something that is medium term. So that's the, the, let's think about how long we mean by short, medium, and long term. Mm-hmm. Short term for me probably is up to three years. So what's going to happen in the in, sort of reasonably immediately foreseeable future for the patient medium term probably between five and seven years and long term 10 to 15 years and if we think about restoration longevity over those kind of times and compare time and motion um, a composite restoration we, we see very good data for posterior composites lasting 10 years. Um, you know, we've, we've gone way past the time when posterior composite was pretty awful. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly when I graduated, it was pretty terrible. And you had to have this conversation with the patient saying, well, we can change those amalgams for composite, but it's not going to last as long. It's not a good material. With improvements in our ability to control shrinkage stress, so the stress of the interface between the tooth and the resin, and also our ability to get good tight proximal contacts. The medium, larger sized composites, they perform well. And we know we've got good data to show that um, 10 years of longevity is not different from that of amalgam. And that's that. Those are papers that have been published seven, eight. I think years ago. Nick Opdam is 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 a big uh, paper by Opdam. Which one of Opdam's well. papers actually? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it gets ignored by some of the UK academics because it doesn't suit their point of view. Um, I'm trying to think of the other one. Um, Heinz and Russon. Um, was a 2012 paper. Mm-hmm. Opdam was one I think it was 2014. The one you were mentioning. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those sort of papers show us that. Um, composite is no longer the poor relation of amalgam and i think probably controversial statement one of the controversial statements that i regularly make is that what that means is that the place for inlays in today's clinical practice is becoming mm-hmm. much more limited because you look at something and you can almost gauge the age of the book you're reading by mm-hmm. what they suggest you do with a medium-sized amalgam cavity mm-hmm. the sort of thing you inherit from an old big class too the yeah. older books will say Shrinkage is a problem. Contacts are a problem. Do an inlay. The newer books will tend to say composite is fine or heaven Mm -hmm. forbid, even bulk fill composite works very nicely. So, you know, composite's a wonderful material, but as long as it's going to work for that situation for the patient. Mm -hmm. Um, There are some situations, of course, where composite is definitely better. Um, Class four fractures, for example, um, to try to do an indirect restoration. I've seen it done and the people who are doing it have either are wonderful technicians themselves or they have a wonderful technician and they always say if you try to do a class four in ceramic make sure you make about three of them and you fit the one the patient <laughs> likes the most so it becomes ridiculously expensive yeah, yeah. and it just it doesn't stack up against direct composite yeah. mm-hmm. although in some situations if you think about longevity over let's say a 20-year period if you have multiple anterior restorations you can do it in composite but it may need to be replaced at, let's say, five, seven, eight years after placement, which is good good longevity for composite. But ceramic will need less maintenance over 10, 15, 20 years. And mm-hmm. if, you, if you stack it all up over 20 years, the two things may end up costing the same amount of money for the patient. 
Well, the one thing I wanted to focus with you, um, Chris, uh, for the duration is, yes, we can talk about anterior, but uh, a lot of the questions that everyone's sending in is actually more based on posterior. So uh, I'd like to gear the conversation more towards posterior. And I think you answered one of the points already, which is one of the first things I was going to ask you is, does Chris Orr believe in inlays? Uh, I want to hear your view in inlays. Because that's, you know, something, I mean, I personally, I can tell you what I believe is, I think it's a Robin Hood dentistry. You're stealing from from the rich and you're giving to yourself. Uh, and that's something I, I had a lecture saying. I love that. Do you think there's a place for inlays? Are you enjoying the Protrusive Dental Podcast? Well, allow me to deliver you even more value. You can now download the iOS or Play Store app for free. Just search Protrusive on your app platform. Now, if you're a true Protrusive and you want to support the podcast, you want to claim CPD for all the listening and watching that you do, you want to get access to exclusive clinical walkthrough videos to make dentistry tangible, as well as a premium newsletter, access to the Protrusive Vault, and the ability to download all the clinical videos and podcast videos so you can view them offline later, you can get all of that for less than 15 tax-deductible dollars per month. So what are you waiting for? Download the Protrusive app now on iOS or Android for absolutely nothing. We work so hard on this Protrusive team, and I know you're just going to love it. Now back to the main episode. Um, okay, everything has its place, but I think inlays are extremely limited today. Um, I'm thinking... I can probably count the number of inlays I do every year on one hand and have many fingers left over. Um, the, you know, in all seriousness, the sort of situations where an inlay becomes something that I think about if I'm treating a quadrant or group of teeth with indirect restorations, one tooth has a large restoration that needs to be replaced. Um, so let's say it's two MOD molars. So let's a sort of a six with a MOD, a seven with an MOD, and the five has an MO. And it's possibly simpler just mm. to prep it as an inlay and get the technician to make it all in one go. In those situations, I charge the, fi- the, pa- the patient the same fee as I would for the filling, which just about covers the lab bill, so mm. I don't make any money on it. Yeah. Um, or there are some situations where... In that exact situation, the plan is to do composite to replace the amalgam. And you think, mm, I'm not, you know, we're, we're running a bit short of time here. Let's just prep that and take an impression and we'll stick something in. So for those sort of situations, it can be helpful. Um, otherwise, no, very limited. I'm, gl- I'm, I'm really glad you said that. Okay, so then the next question is, in a nutshell, uh, what? so really the conversation is not, uh, it, it is about composite versus ceramic, but another way to think about it is direct versus indirect. Right. So um, at what point does uh, something become indirect for you and no longer direct? What guidelines can you share with, with the listeners? OK, um, a few things in no particular order. Um, the balance of longevity versus maintenance. How long is it going to last? How good is it going to look along the way? Um, and sometimes that stacks up in favor of indirect restorations. Um, how long is it going to take you to get it to look good with the technique you've chosen at the chair side? And if it's going to take you longer with a direct technique than an indirect technique, then you have to seriously question your motives for doing it directly. 
or you have to practice your direct technique a lot more because unfortunately we go on all these wonderful composite courses and what you realize is that you're probably not booking enough time to do the finishing and the polishing of mm. the restoration particularly anterior restorations exactly. where the finishing um, I've learned a lot from our mutual friend Joe Bansell about this that you should mm -hmm. spend at least 35 if not 50 percent of the total time doing finishing and polishing mm -hmm. um, which is much longer than many people think is correct but certainly spend more time in that and if that if that stacks up in favor of doing something indirect then indirect um, other thing of course is the i cannot think of a scenario where the direct restoration is going to be less conservative than the indirect the indirect there's always not always very often there will be some kind of preparation and most commonly preparation is to remove any undercut relative to a path of insertion um, like we said a little while ago if the tooth has been has grown itself in the perfect shape mm -hmm. unrestored peg-shaped lateral incisors are a rare but good example um, upper premolars that are unrestored uh, upper premolars are very often extremely suitable for no prep veneers mm -hmm. bond on to the enamel build out your buckle corridor works very very nicely um, and again the other thing of course we'll be thinking about how much prep do we need to do that's possibly the wrong question the question really is how much space do you need for mm -hmm. the material to do what you yep. want so if you think about again some instanding upper premolars you want to build them out um let's for the sake of argument say the occlusion is favorable then you don't you don't need to touch the teeth because the space is already there mm -hmm. very easy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and i think those are probably the major factors probably and the other thing i think we should mention is what where are you starting from are you starting from an unrestored tooth are you starting from a tooth where you've inherited some previous baggage mm -hmm. baggage from previous treatments that you know old fillings the results of old caries is a tooth significantly compromised because caries and endodontic treatment have already taken a big chunk out of the, the tooth and in that situation very often where you're trying to um, restore the tooth and I don't want to say strengthen because restorations rarely strengthen teeth, but to try and do do the thing that will last the longest and do the least damage, then again, sometimes indirect, particularly mm -hmm. posteriorly, can be very helpful. Well, posteriorly is the, the main thing I want to grasp out is when you're looking at uh, molars and you look at the various um, configurations of cavities, uh, how large they are, and the remaining tooth structure remaining once you remove the old restoration or the disease, at what point, I mean, you, the, the classical um, literature suggests that, um, you know, more than a third of the isthmus is something that you should consider uh, cuspal coverage. Is that something that you follow? Um, if we're thinking about isthmus, and again, it's, in terms of giving guidelines, a lot of the time we'd like the guidelines to be a certain number of millimetres. And teeth vary in size so rule of thumb i tend to apply i look at the intercuspal distance and i look at the size of the isthmus of the restoration relative to that intercuspal distance so it's a little bit smaller for premolars a little bit bigger for molars um, up to a third um, isthmus relative to intercuspal distance direct restoration very easy to do third to a half that's either direct restoration or inlay depending on how good you are at doing direct restorations efficiently um, probably more than half would be where you start thinking about covering cusps mm -hmm. um, 
plus or minus if you're in any doubt. And if having room, and usually the decision um, as to whether you want to cover cusps or not, something I learned way, way, way back more than 20 years ago from my one of my first mentors, Swedish guy called Sverker Toriskog. Um, yep. Sverker always said that you make these decisions cusp by cusp after you take out the old restoration and any carries. And basically, he basically said there's three choices. Option number one, inlay prep, i.e. no cuspal coverage. Option number two, onlay prep, so mm-hmm. some cuspal coverage. Option number three, what he called crown prep, um, finishing at the labial gingival margin. Um, other people call that different names. Some people talk about laminate onlays to describe that. Um, I've heard veneer lay being mentioned. I've heard people mm-hmm. saying vonlay. Vonlay, even. Yep. St- yeah, these sort of words that Americans invent to make <laughs> European McLaren, think they've they invented. <laughs> yeah. um, I like Ed a lot. He's a nice guy. Um, I'm trying to think who else. But you know, it's at the end of the day, it's something that just extends up the labial surface of the mm-hmm. tooth. Um, so basically, and, and if you are working in the UK and you're applying that rule of thumb to the kind of cavities that you get in many of our patients coming in who had big amalgams placed on the NHS, you're going to be covering a lot of cusps. Mm-hmm. And that's fine because it's better to cover the cusp than have something break off and then because you, you can't control where the fracture happens. And sometimes fractures mm-hmm. happen very far subgingively and it's not manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the best will in the world, it, you have to take the tooth out, which is yep. sad. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to say that if any time a, um, a cusp re- replacement is necessary, that your default is going to be ceramic? Um, yes, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, because the, the likely condition of the rest of the tooth is... Um, it, the, the tooth may be in need of some further protection. Secondly, I know there are some hugely skilled people who are able to do cusp replacements and composite. I'll put my hand up and say, I am not one of them. Um, I can do it, but it'll take me five times as long and it'll not last as long as something done indirectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of it, it's not, an, it's not always ceramic. Occasionally, I do get to do gold restorations once per couple of years. Again, it's something we offer to patients. Some people most people say oh yeah thank you but no thank you even though you say okay gold is going to outlast everything else that we have people don't seem to want it unfortunately mm-hmm. even dentists who come for treatment they don't want gold oh, unless they have gold in their mouths already yep. but there you go mm-hmm. well the next question then is um composite onlays do they have a place in restorative dentistry i mean i can put my hand up and say i placed quite a few in my nhs days uh not so more now so my default is lithium disilicate but is there a role for composite onlays in restorative dentistry indirect um indirect right yeah. it's no when we, when we were talking earlier about direct versus indirect i chose my words carefully to say that the Direct technique will always be more conservative than indirect. Not to say composite will always be more conservative than ceramic, because I'm not a big fan of composite onlays, having done lots of them, you know, 15, 20 odd years ago. A couple of problems with them. Number one, they are less conservative than today's ceramic. Typically for composite, you need minimum two millimeters of occlusal clearance to make it durable enough to have some chance of surviving. And that's a lot more tooth to take off than, for example, with most ceramics, lithium disilicate, one millimeter as a minimum um, on a 
second molar you might go to one and a half millimeters on a first premolar you might even get less you know 0.7 millimeters um but let's say one millimeter for the sake of comparison mm -hmm. gold half a millimeter mm -hmm. so from the point of view of conservation um no composite doesn't win from the point of view of longevity and when we're talking about onlays with patients the conversation is along the lines of this tooth classically would need a crown a crown involves cutting a little bit away from all the way around the tooth a little bit off the top and we make a little hat called a crown that fits over the top and it protects what is left of the tooth from breakage and so on the usual conversation you have with mm -hmm. your patient and the but the problem with the crown it involves cutting away a lot of the healthy tooth that is remaining so the only will always do it does the same job as a crown only more conservatively we know again from the literature that some of the survival rates that we look at of crowns versus onlays over a 15-year period, it's pretty much the same within a couple of percentage points. So I think it's a reasonable thing to say to the patients that an onlay is kind of like an extended filling. Mm -hmm. It extends over the biting parts of the tooth, and hopefully you're pointing this out on the screen while you're mm -hmm. talking to them. It covers over those things. It stops them from breaking. It binds what's left of the tooth together. It does the same job as a crown, more conservatively. Mm -hmm. So from the, uh, and the other thing, I have a huge collection of pictures of composite onlays that have failed, broken, debonded, etc. And they're all done by me. And yep. those problems went away. That speaks volumes. If they're done by you and they're still failing, then... <laughs> well, no, to be fair, this was, it was early in my career when I wasn't as good as perhaps I ought to have. Those problems went away when I went... Or move to doing those same things in ceramic. So for all those reasons, I don't do them. I actively try to talk people out of doing these sort of things in composite. Um, if you're working in an NHS environment where your budget for the lab work is limited, um, and I, I can appreciate that's the that's the reality of many people. Yeah. Um, I would encourage your listeners to try and find a lab that will do um, a ceramic onlay within a reasonable amount of money that will fit into what you can spend out of a band three mm -hmm. um, so that you get some experience of doing it. Um, while you're doing that, get some photographs so that you can talk the, pa talk the patient through the sequence of events because one day you will not be doing everything on the NHS. And for me, offering people private treatment, it's not just about taking the time and the better materials. It's not just about offering people stuff that might not be available on the NHS. It's about you as the dentist having the experience to get the patient from A to B to C to wherever Z may happen to be. And you can anticipate problems so that the patient's journey is as smooth as possible. And you have to have done things a few times to mm. be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I think that answers it about uh, composite onlays. I was going to ask about the choice of ceramic materials stuff, but I think that's going to be so mammoth uh, that I, I do want to get through some of the questions that uh, some of the listeners have asked. So um, one thing I want to ask just real quickly is, does the parafunctional status of a patient play a role in influencing your material of choice? Okay. If we think just about um, posterior teeth, and we can, we can answer that question while thinking about ceramic selection. Um, mm. I guess the parafunctional status question is one about strength. And how strong does the restoration need to be to survive in that patient? 
Um, if you look at the literature, actually, interestingly, um, a lady in Innsbruck called Stephanie Beyer has been authoring a number of papers over the last 20-odd years. They placed a large number of um, empress restorations, so the Lucite reinforced mm. pressables, um, and they reported various intervals. Curiously, when they did their um, study population, they did not, like most people do, they did not eliminate Bruxers from the study population. So mm. they kept them in. Um, and in the study, with the, it's a 2012 paper where they reported on the survival of the posterior restorations. They did not notice any significantly higher rate of fracture in people who they thought were Bruxers at the time of placing the restorations. Now, to put that in context of the question about strength, it's like a game of top trumps. Um, you've got, and we've played it over the last about 30, 40 years. So on the bottom, we've got feldspathic porcelain. Then the next thing that was supposedly better was mm -hmm. uh, the lucite reinforced pressables like Empress, which is about two to three times the strength of feldspathic. And during the years, we've had all sorts of other variations. We've had the sort of aluminous type porcelain, so the original version of Procera, which was probably about three times the strength of um, the Empress. Emax, the lithium disilicate, the lithium silicate um, type materials. So Emax comes in probably about two, three times the strength of Empress as well. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm not concerned. About, I, I don't try to... Um, beat the patient's power function by making mm -hmm. my ceramic really, really strong. Because the problem with that thought process, you start talking yourself into saying, well, I don't want to do an on leg because it might be too thin, so I'm just going to crown it. And you end up doing very destructive restorations. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, your crown will survive beautifully, but the underlying tooth fractures. Yeah. So the, the short answer is, does the power function status of the patient influence my ceramic choice? Mm -hmm. Not really. The patient's willingness to own the problem Mm -hmm. and comply with whatever night guard we make for them. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, with, with bruxism has a lot in common with periodontal disease. Mm -hmm. Because we have to have these difficult conversations with our patients that you have this problem. I can't cure this problem for you. I'm happy to help you, but it's your problem. Mm -hmm. and, it, and if the patient is, is expecting you to be responsible for periodontal failures and loss of teeth caused by their lack of maintenance or the power functioning patients expecting you to repair everything for free forever because they won't wear the night guard or comply with whatever mm -hmm. else you want them to do mm -hmm. that is not a person you want in your practice absolutely um, and you you need to be strict with them because at the end of the day some people are very unreasonable and you don't want to be fixing stuff for free and taking responsibility for a problem that you cannot Mm -hmm. fix cure i, I, so I like the comparison of perio and bruxism in, in the sense that yes ownership has to come from the patient yeah yeah it's not um, it's not my problem but i'm happy to help brilliant well I like you that. have to flower I think that you, up you, a little bit yeah <laughs> absolutely well you you've answered their power function you know how strong does something need to be i think you've answered that quite well so how about the situation then when you're talking about personally i get uh, worried about placing lithium disilicate on second molars that's when I'd sometimes, uh, I mean, I, I, I do a fair amount of gold for a young dentist, I think. Um, and uh, I, I also may be more likely to go monolithic, monolithic zirconia on a second molar um, than uh, you know, just my concern. I, am I right to be as concerned or is lithium disilicate okay in second molars? 
Um, okay, it's uh, there, and there, there's another extension of that. How strong does stuff need to be? Question, mm-hmm. because right on the top of the of the top trump scheme, you've got the zirconia type materials, the majority of which have um, strengths over. The majority of the early versions have flexural strengths over a thousand megapascals. Um, when you're doing monolithic zirconia, you're making a choice of either aesthetics or strength. The early zirconias, the core type materials, were very strong, but they looked ugly. So lava is a good example of that. Very, very good material, but you had to put something else on top to make it work. And until they'd worked out how to support the veneering ceramic, lots of chipping mm-hmm. happened. Chipping. Um, the second generation, similar crystalline structure, materials like Bruxer, um, that you can you can use for monolithic. Um, and then the third generation, the sort of cubic zirconias, katana being the main commercial example of that, they much more um, aesthetic, much more translucent, but a massive drop in strength. And the strength is at best two thirds of what the um, lava stroke bruxer type mm. products are. Now, and that means you're choosing how strong do you want it to be versus how aesthetic do you want it to be. And you get to a point where actually the... Um, you're not that far away from things like lithium disilicate. So I think perhaps for if you if you want to do something that is going to be slightly more conservative, then perhaps the monolithic, monolithic zirconia may have an advantage on a second molar where the occlusal forces are higher. Um, if you want to do it in lithium disilicate, probably that's where 1.5 millimeters of prep would be. Things. So half a millimeter more than you would do on a first molar, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly something you don't worry about as much as long as you do the correct, uh, lead, have the correct space for the material. Yeah. Okay. And unfortunately, that sometimes is a bit of a conflict that, you see, again, you see people posting cases on social media where they say, okay, the patient's got anterior wear and posterior wear. Let's open them up on the front and then we'll place no prep onlays on the back. Yep. Fantastic idea. Except that you realize that the anterior teeth have to become a, either a mile long or a mm. mile thick in order to get the space on the second molars to do that. Yep. So unfortunately, you it's very, very rarely possible to do no prep mm-hmm. on lays on second molars in a wear case just because you can't get the thickness, sadly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you, you may not have to do as much prep, but because you still get some space from opening the vertical. But you still, I, I respect your point there. There will be some prep. No, it, it can't be no prep a lot of these times. Um, now I'm going to just dive into some of the questions the, the listeners uh, have sent. Uh, before I do that, any um, last words on you know the very pure conversation about direct versus indirect composite ceramic? Any points that you wanted to cover that perhaps we weren't able to? I don't think so. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really about the conversation i guess with your with your patient mm-hmm. and um the i think the other point that i would make about choosing particularly if you're thinking about choosing ceramics talk to your technician ask the technician what they think is best in this particular situation if it doesn't if it doesn't appear to be a run-of-the-mill case get on the phone talk to the lab the technicians fix many of the problems that we tie ourselves up in knots about they do it day in day out and there's a huge bank of experience and knowledge you can draw on Mm-hmm. Having said that, don't be scared to challenge them because sometimes they will do what's easiest for them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you may have to be—you have to be a more discerning consumer, I guess—to mm-hmm. get the best from them. I like that. I mean, something I, I learned only a few years ago is that uh, as a young dentist trying to develop and uh, become better at what I do, sometimes you reach a point where actually 
you have to you learn that you have to actually train your technician as well and just because your technician may be uh, twice my age or, or whatever they still have something i can they can learn from me and i can learn from them as well so have that that's a great point you made there so question is um from naz and he says do you prefer dual cure resin cement or heated flowable for uh, bonding onlays or, or neither okay. and something else <laughs> um right for a veneer i prefer a light cured cement because i tend to fit them all at once and i want the thing to set on command for an onlay my preference is um a dual cure adhesive resin cement preferably a self-etching one mm-hmm. um my favorite one at the minute is maxem elite chroma okay. um, it's a car product it's the one that goes pink when you mix it mm-hmm. and when it's ready for you to do the cleanup um it's gone from pink to transparent or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can give you, your listeners, one top tip for cementing onlays, please use a dual cure cement. Please wait for it to set chemically and do the cleanup when it is easy. Do not do what I have wasted, probably days of my life if you added, added it all up, by trying to be clever and tack cure it with your light. You always overset it. You always stick some things together. And it's really, mm-hmm. really difficult mm-hmm. to get something in between that upper six and upper seven to clear the contact. Anteriorly, yep. we have those wonderful little serrated strips into proximal saws that you can go in and clear the cement with they're fantastic yep they work posteriorly but getting them in without cutting lips and fingers and things not worth it um and the reason that i learned that when that max um, product came along the color change the reaction from pink to transparent it forced me to wait and my nurse one day said you do realize that we're spending on average 45 minutes less per fit appointment for multiple onlays than we used to so even though you've got to wait for it initially, and I recognize that persuading dentists to wait for something is really, really difficult because we're all very <laughs> impatient, myself Absolutely. included. Overall, the whole thing takes less time. Oh, that's interesting. So dual cure cement, definitely. Now, the issue about heated composite, I'm not sure why you'd want to heat flowable specifically to make it more... Flowable. Yeah, they said heated flowable, but yeah, maybe they meant um, heated composite so it becomes heated more flowable. composite in general. Yeah. Um, the heated composite idea, that's a thing, again, from many, many years ago. The very early version of CEREC, where the version one, basically, where you had to finish the occlusal surface yourself, and the marginal fit discrepancy was typically about 400 microns. One of the workarounds at that time was you put normal restorative composite, heated restorative composite, mm-hmm. into the tooth, and you seated the inlay because that was all they did at that time. You see the inlay into that, and so the margin was filled up not with cement, Mm -hmm. but with regular composite that would be more um, wear resistant. Mm -hmm. Um, So does that technique work? Yes, there's a pretty good evidence base from the early CEREC literature on it. Um, Do I do it? No. Um, Just because sometimes, and particularly when we're thinking about the other end of the spectrum with our restorations, where today we're increasingly doing very, very minimal thickness, no prep type restorations. The big advantage of all the strength that we talked about a moment ago, the restoration is, uh, the material, sorry, is strong enough that it will survive manufacturing in the lab, heating and cooling and glazing and cooling, etc., without it breaking. It's Mm -hmm. durable enough to survive us fitting it um, mm-hmm. The number of restorations that break on uh, fracture during cementation is very, very low, fortunately. Mm-hmm. And it's, that's an interesting thing because the um, all the survival studies that we have, the clock starts the moment the restoration goes on the tooth. Mm-hmm. 
they don't tell you how many things they broke in the lab or the dentist broke before they fitted them. That's interesting. I never thought about that way. So the strength means that we can make super thin restorations. And unfortunately, if if you're rough with them, they do break. Um, And for that reason, the seating pressure, the hydrostatic pressure for seating, even the hottest regular composite, um, I find it's too much. And and I've tried it in broken restorations. So, and then particularly the person who talks a lot about this technique is Pascal Magna. the material he recommends for the for cementing veneers with heated composite is a dentine shade of HFO, the mycerium mm-hmm. veneenis material. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever used that one, but it's mm-hmm. one of the stiffest composites in the universe. Very stiff, yeah. And heating it is obligatory to make it workable for anybody, including Vanini. So how he fits things, and I've asked him, you know, many times can you just run me through how you fit things without breaking them particularly the wafer thin veneers that he's just been showing in his presentation and i, I must be missing something because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it doesn't it, it doesn't make logical sense to me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what so are no, you using resin, resin cement all the time so, so for, even for veneers, anteriorly yeah anteriorly as well absolutely i mean you could you, okay. i guess you could use flowable um i've, I've used uh vario link the light cure version of Variolink, which is Ivoclar's material. Yep. I've used that for many years. I've used mm-hmm. Nexus, which is Kerr's material. Okay. Well, either of those two. Um, okay. But to be ever done, any light cured cement for veneers, any dual cure cement for onlays. Just wait for Brilliant. the dual cure cement to set, please. Excellent. Very good tip. Uh, and then the other question, which I, th- I, 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 yeah, I think this will help a lot of young dentists, is... Um, do you always go for some sort of preparation join circumferentially or do you sometimes leave the buckle or lingual walls with no preparation or just a small bevel? So I think sometimes let's say you've got, um, in fact, I've got a example cavity I can show you. Um, okay. Let me see if I can get this up just a second. It's sometimes nice to have a visual as well. So uh, I'm going to share this photo here. So here is a, I think it was a, a lower molar uh, at the time. Uh, and we can see that mm-hmm. crack on the, on the, on the buckle uh, wall. Mm-hmm. So for me, uh, I would be uh, taking this uh, buckle, and I think probably the entire buckle side down. And I'd probably uh, preserve uh, the, 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 if I said it was a, a lower molar, let's say, uh, upper molar, sorry, upper molar, let's preserve this palatal. Uh, I think that's what they're asking. Is that are you happy to preserve some some cusps or bevel, or do you always cover them over? Okay, um, I think there's a, there's a couple of answers to that question. One, what do you what do you cover, and two, um, what sort of design do you do? So coverage. Um, if there's any doubt in my mind as to whether the cusp is going to be viable, I will cover it. Um, in the example that you've shown, the Buckle cusps, definitely, they need coverage. I can see a mm-hmm. lovely crack there. Mm-hmm. Um, but So definitely cover the buckle cusps. Um, the palatal cusp, I'd be tempted to leave. And then you then life becomes more complicated. You think, is that a functional cusp? It's an upper tooth, so it shouldn't be functional. If it was a lower lingual cusp, I'd probably cover it. Um, how much overbite does the patient have? In other words, do they have sufficient canine guidance or anterior guidance to make the posteriors disclude? Mm-hmm. Um, so if in any doubt, cover the cusp over. Okay. Um, second thing, what finish do we do? If I go back again to the days of using um, Empress, so probably about a third of the strength of lithium disilicate, maybe not the material of choice today for that reason. Um, Empress was beautifully translucent and a flat butt joint would blend in 
really, really beautifully. Slightly paradoxically, sometimes you had to use a very brown color of cement to get it to do that trick, but it All worked. Right. So a completely flat butt joint, even on upper premolars, was okay. Um, Emacs is a little bit less translucent than that. Mm-hmm. So for a visible surface, I will place a small bevel. That small mm-hmm. bevel will be probably two to three millimeters long. The angle will be roughly between 45 and 60 degrees. Mm-hmm. Please don't get your protractor out and try and measure it. Which <laughs> is something to allow. Uh, we, everybody just wants to know how many millimeters is this. Um, it's a very dentist question. But just something to allow the ceramic to sort of feather in. And mm-hmm. I would try to keep that within enamel. Mm-hmm. Um, I see, I do see people putting up pictures of um, maybe preparation joint is the term that those people use where they do, it's almost like a little mini crown prep mm-hmm. around mm-hmm. the thing. Yep. Um, there's a lot of reasons I don't do that. Um, I can understand why people think that they should do it because there's lots of diagrams out there trying to illustrate onlay preparations where they show exactly that. Mm-hmm. Um, to be perfectly honest, there's very rarely enough tooth to allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. And if, the to- if there's enough tooth there to let you put that big joint onto it, you probably shouldn't be covering the cusp over in the first place because it doesn't mm-hmm. need mm-hmm. it. Um, also, it tends to mean that you're cutting more enamel away than you need to more tooth away than you need to and then you're sort of halfway down the tooth and you think i'll just do a crown and you end up doing something much more invasive so for all those reasons that type of joint no i don't so if let's say we're doing an upper premolar so a very visible tooth the buccal surface will have a little bit of a bevel the palatal surface will be a flat butt joint Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. upper molars maybe a bevel and again the advice i always gave if you're doing these type of things the first time um, an upper first molar is a good tooth to practice your on lays on because they're commonly heavily restored and they're far enough back that if you don't quite get the bevel quite right and learn how to blend the margin in this time you can learn from it whereas an upper first premolar that's one that you save for later when you've learned to do the margin blending in trick uh, mm-hmm. because it's a much more visible location brilliant uh, that that's a very good answer and, and you went above and beyond to answer about hiding the the, the margin there as well on the premolar which is which is very much appreciated thank you uh, opinion on pressed emacs versus cad cam milled emacs um no i'd the person is asked. The person is asked that question. I'm not quite sure why or what specific properties you're um, uh, asking in, about. In my there. mind, I think it was probably um, the uh, marginal gap in the fit uh, of restorations. It, it, that's how I assumed it, or maybe strength, or well, we discussed that already, I suppose. But probably how how well it fits and seats. Is there? A, I, I believe there is a difference uh, in terms there of is, there is supposed yeah. to be a, a difference. But then, mm-hmm. if we're saying that using heated composite to fill or composite in some shape or form to fill voids at the margins is okay we shouldn't be the marginal fit of these restorations is perfectly acceptable um or within the acceptable range Mm -hmm. the other the other things that sort of came to mind when i was thinking about that question there are some interesting sort of crystalline structure differences if you look at them under the electron microscope you think you're looking at two completely different materials the crystalline structure of the um, milled material looks very different to the um, pressed material it doesn't seem to be reflected in clinical performance Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to draw a distinction between what happens in the lab and what actually happens clinically. Because the other version of um, uh, 
CADCAM. And it's, we're at an interesting time with digital dentistry that there are very few restorations that are done 100% analog. There are very few restorations that are done 100% digital. And mm -hmm. each different stage, the technician can hop between the analog and digital workflows. So for some of the very um, conservative, no prep type stuff, um, what my technician tells me when I torture him with one of those types of cases, they prefer to do it off a traditional analog impression so that they can have a plaster model that they will scan. Um, they will then the they will then take the plaster model. They will scan it in their scanner. Mm -hmm. They will then produce the coping on the computer. They will mill that from wax rather mm -hmm. than milling it from ceramic, okay. and then the mm -hmm. wax gets invested and pressed so mm -hmm. that they can go the below point five even at, even at the moment of pre of pressing. And that's how you get the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. So I think the the best answer to that question is from a clinical level. Um, I don't think it's going to make an impact on outcomes for your patient. Um, mm -hmm. But on a production level, I think whoever's asked that question kind of a very interesting conversation with their technician about exactly what the little foibles are. Mm -hmm. And I think another bit of advice I would give to all of your listeners, the amount of CAD CAM your lab is doing is much more than you think. So I would encourage Definitely. all your listeners, when the world hopefully comes back to normal, get in the car, Go and meet your technician, go and meet everybody in the lab and just have a chat. Look at what they're doing, learn about how they're making your restorations for your patients. And it's a very good way of that sort of first step on the journey of working together as a team with your technician so that you together produce the best results for your patients. Brilliant. I've got four more questions. I think two okay. are... One is clinical and three are actually non-clinical. So the clinical one is, uh, uh, what are your views on the BOPT technique? So those listening and watching is the biologically orientated preparation technique. There's a paper by uh, Ignacio Loy that I shared some episodes back that you can uh, download. Uh, but um, obviously the other word for it that people are now using is vertiprep, Etruscan prep. Uh, Chris, can you tell us about your views on this very old preparation, which has now uh, become in fashion, if you like? It's okay. It's interesting. Um, and the people who do it a lot, um, the first thing they often say is this is not a new technique. It's an update of a traditional technique with today's materials. So it's basically, um, and again, it comes back to strength of our materials. We can make restorations much thinner and they survive. We can mm -hmm. make them and then we stick them on adhesively generally and then they work really, really nicely. So it's kind of getting the best of both worlds. A lot of the time we're thinking about some of the gold preparation principles and applying those onto ceramic. Things which previously would have been impossible because the material wasn't strong enough in thin section. So that's the... and. It, it means that you end up prepping teeth a lot less. Um, what it also, I think, reminds us of is one of the preparation bits of dogma that sticks in our heads, which was, I was always taught that you should do half a millimeter subgingival margins when you prep the tooth. Mm -hmm. Brackets, four porcelain fused to metal. Because that was mm -hmm. basically the only, one of the only, it was, in my day when I was a student, it was either PFM or gold. Mm -hmm. All ceramic wasn't really done all that much. Um, feldspathic jacket crowns, BJCs, not really. Yeah. But even even they survived in people's mouths somehow. But generally, it was PFM or gold. PFM looks ugly at the margin, so you had to hide the margin subgingival. 
And the problem with that is that half a millimeter isn't a very easy distance to measure at the chair side. So mm-hmm. your brain goes, there's a special bit of your brain that develops when you do the Crown and Bridge course at uni. It's the let's take a little bit more off just to be sure gland in your brain. <laughs> and it makes you go a little bit further subgingival. And the further you go subgingival, the harder it is to get a mm-hmm. decent impression. And, you know, the classic Valderhaug paper about 70% of subgingival margins becoming supergingival within five years. Um, and the suggestion of biologic width invasion. Um, per, I've heard it said that you can never diagnose a biologic width invasion until you've put a well-fitting temporary on the tooth. And okay. the more times that I see that problem, mm-hmm. um, that sort of soggy red continuous inflammation, mm-hmm. and you put something that fits properly on, and the inflammation all goes away. That I and also excess cement is is something that. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's been been a growing problem in the implant world for the last probably ten years. So people have been openly talking about it. You're right. So. If you get something that is cleanable by the patient, a lot of the supposed biologic width invasions actually go away. Mm-hmm. So, um, number one, don't prep subgingively if you have a choice. Place your margins equigingively or supergingively if you are the first person to get to the tooth. Put the margins on somewhere that's easy for you to get a rest, um, and a good impression of. So where does BOPT come in? Um, the BOPT, it's nicely written up there and there are some very nice clinical examples. Um, I'm thinking of a paper. The one by Loy is nice. There's another one, um, Journal of Prosthetic Dentistry. Um, Augustin Panadero, I think, is the author. Yeah, Augustin. I can yeah. send you the reference afterwards. And it shows it very nicely. And what you've got to bear in mind with that type of technique where you're eliminating a deeply subgingival margin and placing something essentially knife edge at gingival level you're starting from a position where you've got something ugly and that idea it's, it's a wonderful technique for getting you out of that situation where the tissue is absolutely unmanageable so you cut off the old restorations you get some beautifully fitting temporaries and that's either you take an impression and the lab make acrylic um, provisionals the mm-hmm. lab or option two the lab makes some shells that you spend a long time relining at the chair side um, or some of your listeners will think that they can they're good enough to do it with you know pro temp quick temp materials like that um, honestly the amount of time you spend i find is disproportionate because if you want the gums to heal the fit has to be a hundred percent immaculately perfect otherwise you get no chance so in my hands that means shell provisionals that i will reline with um cold cure acrylic trim Mm -hmm, snap mm -hmm. some of the traditional materials um and it may take a couple of relines to get it fitting perfectly and then you let the patient go away and keep it nice and clean and then hopefully the tissue becomes manageable. It's unfortunately not possible to do it without the provisional stage because yep. the shrink it. The, and again, when you're explaining this to the patient, you can say, look, your gums are all red and swollen and puffy. We'll put the provisionals on. Your gums are going to shrink. This is good. This is them getting better. But it may mean that you're going to get some black spaces in between the temporaries and some of the edges of the temporaries may become visible, which is why we do them as temporaries, because once things are healthy, mm-hmm. then we make the final ones. So it's it's and it's it, it, it's a difficult it's it's an expensive treatment plan for the patient. So your explanation skills have to be really good. So yeah, it's it's the summary is it's an excellent technique if you're in that situation. Um, otherwise, 
the thing that I can't understand about um, vertical preps is... I know, okay, people have different opinions on when yep, you shouldn't do an online, when you should do a core build-up and when you place a crown. And I can argue the toss with those people over a beer at some point. But what I don't understand is when you, if you're doing a marginless prep, super ginger marginless prep, that's great. Um, many people who talk about that technique, they will loot the crown with glass ionomer. And I don't understand why they don't take advantage of adhesive cementation because mm -hmm. we can bond onto zirconia these days. Marcus Blatz's APC protocol Absolutely. makes it very, very easy. So I, I don't understand why you go to all this trouble of doing a nice prep, making a nice zirconia restoration, and then you stick it on with GIC. I think you're, you're missing, a, missing a trick. Mm -hmm. But maybe, again, there's something that I've missed in presentations and books and other podcasts. Okay. And I, I, I doubt that very much, <laughs> but okay, fine. So then uh, last three questions are non-clinical. Uh, one okay. is what will happen to applications to the um, advanced dental seminars, which are, you know, a lot of my friends have been on. Uh, I, I guess the only, the only reason I probably didn't end up going on it in my cohort was I went through various uh, DCT restorative positions. And then I, I spoke to so many people who have done your course. I, I, I've learned a lot from these people. And your, your course, I think, is very oversubscribed every year. So people have, you know, when I put your photo up and I said, any questions, you know, it's no surprise that this question came up. What's going to happen to applications for the next round of your um, year-long course? Okay, thanks. A good question. Thank you for asking that one. <laughs> um, right. What was supposed to happen was we were supposed to open the bookings next Tuesday usually two weeks, a couple of weeks after Easter is the traditional time that we do it. Um, because of all the stuff that's happening in the world, we will, that's been put off. Um, what, we, what I would suggest for your listeners, we will be running a course next year. Um, we, need to, we need to see actually um, how the dust is settling down in terms of the easing of the lockdown and how it's going to be possible to get people into a room together to do a course together. Um, I would encourage your listeners to um, follow us, on, follow the Advanced Dental Seminars Facebook page or keep a look at an eye on our website because whatever we decide to do, we'll put the information on there. So yeah, we will be doing something, I hope. Um, if we're all still stuck in our houses together and unable to come together, the world's going to be a very sad place. Yeah. So I hope to see some of your listeners in London in September in a I'll, normal I'll way. Put the, I'll put the Facebook link up so those who are interested uh, in the next round they'll can keep up to date. The next question is um, what have you been up to during lockdown Chris? People want to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. In no particular order um, I have been organising lots of photographs um, photographs when you when you're into photography as a hobby you spend a lot of time taking things but sometimes you just stick them in a hard disk and say okay look at it later and you don't um, so I've been doing a little bit of that I've been delivering webinars for our current course participants to, um, to keep the engagement with them um, I've been looking at how we may do some more stuff um, online as opposed to face-to-face -face. Um, I've become increasingly of the opinion that all the reading that we give to people um people don't really read it so we need an, a different way of yeah let's be honest about it um <laughs> there are the dedicated people who do and we try to nag everybody to make sure but some people don't and i think a different way of doing that part of it might be helpful so i've been looking doing a lot of sort of um preparatory work for that mm -hmm. um what else have i been doing cooking eating brilliant excellent good fun Excellent. Enjoying the podcasts last... about making pizza. 
<laughs> very good, very good. Well, the, the, the final question I have, and you've been, it's been fantastic to have you on. And I, this is actually my favorite question. Uh, it's sent in by someone called uh, Shirab. Uh, thanks, Shirab, for sending it in. And it's basically, if you graduated in 2019, and knowing all that you know now, would you have done anything different? Okay, good question. Um, I think the advice that I would give um, a younger version of myself if I was graduating again right now, or any of your listeners who've graduated relatively mm, recently, dentistry is a very practical craft. You need to hone your hand skills. And working in a high volume environment becomes very, it becomes very difficult to do that. But I think I said about it earlier that you, you have to have experience of doing some techniques before you offer them to somebody privately, because the private patient journey, it's not just about the clinical outcome, it's about the way in which the journey happens. The old version of the NHS that I worked in for a few years, it was actually pretty decent at letting you round out your skill set, because even then, the universities could not manufacture examples of every possible clinical procedure for you to do while you were a student. So the idea of VT, as it was called then, was supposed to help you round things out. Mm -hmm. And that sadly doesn't seem to be the case any longer. So I would suggest to your, your listeners that they try to um, make the most of what opportunities they do have. Um, Clinical photography, very important skill to develop. Um, that's starting at undergraduate level now in some places. I'm happy to see that. Which is great. But making sure that you do it routinely so that you can blaze off all those pictures, show the patients their mouths, get patient involvement and engagement. And very often the conversation about doing some of the nicer things comes from doing that. Mm -hmm. And and that, allow, that also allows you to practice your communication skills. It allows you to practice your treatment planning skills not just what you're going to do but the backup plan in your mind as to what if this doesn't work out exactly the way that i want um how do i manage the problem because often when complications arise there's a clinical issue and there's a person attached to the clinical issue mm -hmm. and the person attached to the problem is the one that makes the complaint not the tooth very true so all for all those things it's um to try and take advantage of those opportunities. Also, any information that is out there, take advantage of it. Uh, this podcast is, is wonderful. Um, so download all the back episodes and listen to that because there's lots of very, very eminent people um, who've, who've really done some very nice podcasts um, for you. Um, what else? Join all the societies of whatever you're interested in, mm -hmm. uh, whatever that happens to be. Um come and do courses in whatever you're interested in that's also helpful and I think the other thing the environment that I grew up in is a lot of parallels I think between Irish families and other cultures where your mum wants you to be a professional and mm -hmm. then once you become the professional you must be a specialist in that profession um, <laughs> similarities with other cultures completely yep. coincidental um, being a specialist is not the be all and end all how you are with your patients how you can talk to them um, how well you can build rapport with them that is far more important than mm -hmm. a bit of paper on the wall even though your mum might not be too happy about that so develop communication skills 
brilliant well thank you very much well Chris uh, thanks for all the clinical nuggets and right at the end there's some uh, very nice non-clinical stuff as well uh, I wish you all the best for the rest of the uh, lockdown and I hope ADS can get uh, running again soon for all the hungry people for, for, for the knowledge who are after that and uh, thanks again for, for coming on it's been okay. really great having you on today thank you very much thank you so there we have it, uh, a fantastic episode with Chris Orr there, who, you know, really proved his rock star status. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. And remember, if you want to claim your enhanced CPD, if you just wait a few weeks, there's a bit of a backlog, but eventually it will come on to dentinal tubules, where you can actually watch it there again, or watch it there for the first time, if you're listening to it. And then you can also answer the, the questions, acknowledge the aims and objectives, and have your fully enhanced CPD certificate. Thanks again for joining, and I'll catch you in the next one. Thank you.